welcome to Your Money, Your Purpose. I am your host, Jan Schalkwick. Money is like energy. It's valuable for what you can do with it, not for its own sake. In this podcast, we will talk about how to put your money to its best use and what you want your money to do for you and for others. Your money awaits your purpose. Join us as we explore the intersection of money and purpose and how to power your life financially. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. And with me is Leslie Samuel Ridge, the president of Green Century Funds. Green Century is one of the first fund families to specialize in fossil fuel free and environmentally responsible investing in the US. And what they're also very much known for is their track record in shareholder activism, which is the topic of today. So please join me in welcoming Leslie. Thanks for having me on, Jan. Thank you, Leslie, for joining us today. We look forward to our conversation. I think our first order of business is to talk a little bit about what shareholder activism is. I'll, I'll give you what I think it is, but Leslie will have much more insight on that. Then we'll go from there. So shareholder activism is basically, it's about being an active shareholder and voting your shares to positively influence corporate behavior on a variety of topics that you might care about, whether it relates to the environment, the workforce, board structure, just to, to name a few examples. And it's of particular interest to my clients um, as I invest on their behalf with sort of a dual mandate. First and foremost is to achieve attractive risk-adjusted uh, returns. But secondly, and sort of the dual part of the mandate is to invest uh, according to their values and, and also according to their preferences in terms of how they want to express those values. So without further ado, uh, Leslie, take it away. Shareholder advocacy at Green Century and for other active investors is leveraging the power that we have as shareholders to express our concerns to a company or to press them to make a change in their policies or practices. Again, on any of the issues that you mentioned, whether it's environmental, social, or governance issues. And there's a variety of ways for people to get involved. And there's a variety of ways that we at Green Century do the shareholder advocacy on behalf of our investors. Yeah, great. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about sort of who your typical investor is. I think that would be helpful to our audience. Sure. Our typical investor is a person who cares a lot about the environment, wants to align their investments with those environmental values and is a college professor, is someone that is a member of an environmental group on the side. Maybe it's a small business that offers Green Century in their retirement plan or some, just a few high net worth people who particularly looking for high impact investments ones that both align their values in the investment strategy, but also offer the impact that we give through shareholder advocacy. And a unique thing about Green Century is that we were started and are owned by environmental and public health nonprofit organizations. So for the last 30 years, all of the profits that we make belong to those organizations for their critical work. As people have come into thinking about 
their money is always making a decision or making some kind of impact. Let's let's have it make a positive impact on the environment that those people have been drawn to Green Century. And as you noted, we're the first family of fossil fuel-free mutual funds that are environmentally responsible or friendly and are diversified. And so that has attracted a lot of investors, particularly in the last 10 years, where climate change has really come into people's understanding as a potential threat to their portfolios, as well as just to our species and society. Great. When clients engage me, you know, we always sort of explore the kind of, kind of the ways you can invest as a ESG, SRI, impact investor, whatever your preferred term is. And and I see that sort of in a, in a there's two ways, essentially, and, and you can combine them, I guess that would be a third way. But one is to, you know, sort of include or exclude certain companies based on, on your values or based on the perceived risks as it relates to the environment or, or you know, social issues to community, et cetera. Then the question that often comes up is how impactful is that really if, you know, if I don't own ExxonMobil, somebody else does. And although my portfolio aligns with me, I'm not sure, you know, what, what kind of change I'm affecting in the world and just sort of leaving it out there is, you know, but, but that's, that's what comes up. And then on the, you know, activism side, you, you make the case, you know, that, well, you can, you can sort of nudge companies in, in the right direction and possibly a little bit more than nudge. And so that, so that is more obviously impactful but then the question that comes up there is like, do you just invest in in any company and then you you try to keep them on the straight and narrow or sort of push them in the right direction? Or is there sort of a bar for inclusion to begin with before you even get to the point of activism? So just curious how you deal with that uh, at Green Century. Yeah, it's a great question because different mutual funds and investment advisors do have different approaches. So for Green Century, we start with these exclusionary screens or excluding some industries that at at their core business are just environmentally dangerous or reckless in our opinion. And so those include fossil fuel companies. They include tobacco nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, and then in our balance fund, it also includes factory farms. And the reason being, I think when people are thinking about making an impact, that their first consideration is like, they just want things that they do, companies that they shop at, lifestyle choices they make, investments that they seek to be in alignment or follow the same kind of thing so they can look look at all the ways that they are interacting with the world and have that kind of alignment. And I do agree that unless it is a concerted effort and there's a big campaign involved, like divestment campaign around South Africa in the 80s, that one individual divesting will not make an impact, but when it is a combined effort, it can make an impact in the sense of it sends a message, it sort of weakens the position of that company or in the case of South Africa, the government. And as evidence, 
you know, when apartheid was dismantled and Archbishop Desmond Tutu came to the U.S., the first stop he made was out at UC Berkeley to thank the students there who had run a divestment campaign. And that divestment campaign really did help um, move the needle and result in the end of apartheid. The same with the fossil fuel divestment campaign in that it has not bankrupted fossil fuel companies, nor did it ever think that it could, but it's weakened the social license of them. And so that's when you see currently with like the Inflation Reduction Act passing that oil and gas companies did get some things out of that, but the renewable energy companies and people who care about climate change, in my opinion, got more. And that might not have happened with the concerted fossil fuel divestment campaign for the last 10 years making pressure and sort of chipping away at the power that the fossil fuel industry had at the policy level. So that is how we think about that first and foremost. Then we invest in companies that have high and meet our high ESG or environmental, social, and governance criteria so that they're managing those risks better, which may increase their performance um, for our investors. But we do think about that as part of the investment strategy, as well as using um, the fixed income portion of our balance fund. We have more than right now 60% of those bonds in green and renewable bonds. And so those bonds are helping finance climate mitigation projects around the world. It's helping the San Francisco Bay transportation and bus system get greener, putting on buses that are cleaner, refurbishing the big municipal station down there, um, as well as, for example, funding solar projects in Ecuador um, and in other places around the world. But then when we think about how to make an impact you can really measure in the world. That's when we go back to shareholder advocacy as well as our nonprofit ownership, because that is something that is both not nearly as common among mutual fund or investment advisors and something that happens beyond the investment strategy and is something you can sometimes even measure in terms of amount of plastic reduced or gigatons of carbon taken out of the atmosphere. And those stories, I think, are are ones that people can understand and they can really see the impact that they're making. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And perhaps, you know, this is a good moment to maybe introduce some of the success stories that you've had, because I think we can all relate to, to stories. And sometimes, you know, shareholder activism, the exposure certainly that I've had, you know, you're you're reading proxy statements and you're trying to figure out what it's 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 almost like reading the pamphlet you get when you you know before you have to vote and it's <laughs> it's time consuming. You're not sure mm-hmm. if you're reading it right. So maybe you have some relatable stories for us to to get excited about being uh, activist shareholders. I do. I have a lot. So last year. Green Century engaged or worked with 80 companies. And out of those 80, 20, we got 20 of them to make changes to their policies or practices on their environmental supply chains or how they run their operations. And so it was a very successful season. 
To give you a couple of highlights. So first, one of the issues we started working on two years ago was plastic pollution. But plastics, you know, as I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, have really ravaged ocean wildlife, really disrupting disrupting them and have now even unfortunately found their way into our bloodstream because of the food chain issue. So fish can't detect little pieces of plastic and ingest them. And if we eat those fish, that those microplastics can get passed into us. So it's really, there's there's a number of reasons to try to reduce plastics in our world. And two years ago, we started working with Coke, Coca-Cola. And the first year we went to them, they were pulled out as the largest plastic producer in the world. And so they have a lot to a lot of things to improve upon. And one of the things that we're really concerned about is that they're just using so much plastic in their containers. And we brought this up as a risk to them after a set of conversations um, and including something called filing a shareholder resolution that we can talk about more, they agreed to have at least 25% of all the beverages sold globally distributed in refillable or returnable bottles um, by 2030. So that was the second achievement that we got from them. Um, Refillable bottles are particularly used in Latin America. If any of your readers are in my generation, you might remember when you used to go buy soda, they came in glass bottles and that wooden crate and you'd get a crate of it, you'd drink it all and you return it and then you get a clean crate with new bottles filled up with your, your beverage of choice. So that is really promising. And that came on after we first got Coke to just straight out reduce the amount of plastics that they are using. And that is now getting Coke, which again has been rated as the world's worst corporate plastic polluter, to both reduce the amount of single-use plastics and then increase its use of refillable and reusable packaging. And that is very promising. Another part of plastics People may be familiar with the company Mattel, which makes a lot of toys. And I know if you, if any of your listeners are new parents or even grandparents that buy toys for the kids, that it just comes in that really thick plastic packaging. It's actually even hard to open, let alone being a burden on the environment. And we worked with Mattel after, again, a set of conversations with them, they announced just this last April that it is agreed to reduce the amount of plastic packaging in its products. And what they've specifically said is that in their toys from Barbies to Hot Wheels, they announced a new goal to reduce plastic packaging by 25% per product by 2030. And how they're going to do it is by redoing the plastic packaging. So Barbies now, which are usually encased in that hard plastic that covers the front of them, sort of testing new models to get rid of that plastic. Or with the Hot Wheels, making it so that the Hot Wheels are in a different packaging so that, again, you could 
see the Hot Wheel, maybe even touch it, but they would not have that overcoat of plastic, which is, uh, you know, unnecessary and just creates more pollution. I could go on and on, but let me, <laughs> let me just, yeah. those, are two, well, those are two examples on plastics, at least. Well, Leslie, I'm, I'm very disappointed that you're so late to the game with Hot Wheels. I have a four-year-old at home and I have a Hot Wheels box uh, sitting on my uh, kitchen table that I have yet to open. And it, it's definitely in that uh, in that plastic that you, you mentioned. So by the time uh, 2030 rolls around, uh, I, I guess uh, future parents will benefit from it. Future parents, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's, that's really great think, and on right. point. I don't think they'll also, this is like, that all has to be done by 2030. They are already starting testing on different products to see what works and doing repackaging and we'll start phasing in across all their products. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And time is of the essence on, on so many levels and, you know, in the field in which we operate. So, um, yeah, thank you. That was, that was very, uh, it, it's relatable to, to have some, some examples like that. Now, my, my next question relates to kind of the how-to part of the shareholder activism. You know, I, I get, uh, gosh, so many proxy statements as, as an advisor to, to other folks' money, you know, multiply 70 clients by, you know, hundreds of securities by, you know, by, you know, it just kind of figure out the number of proxies there. And, you know, I looked at hiring a proxy advisor and it sort of, back of a napkin math was would wipe out my entire revenue and certainly couldn't pass that on to client either. Uh, right. So, so how can we sort of engage without being overwhelmed? And maybe, maybe, maybe you can just give us sort of the, the dummies guide to, to proxies and, and shareholder resolutions if that, if, if sure. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. To try to break it down and to make it so that, People can get involved, but without, you know, taking on a part-time job of reading all the information that comes. So most companies, and I should say this, I should let me back up and say that the shareholder advocacy season works on the school year calendar almost. So the fall is when shareholder advocates at Green Century and others are talking to companies and bringing up concerns and trying to reach agreements. If those agreements are not met or aren't sufficiently met, then an investor can file something called the shareholder resolution or ballot question. And that's what shows up on all the materials that investors get in the mail, usually in the springtime. And that's when investors are asked to vote on the different pieces and in anticipation and in preparation for the annual meetings, which again happen in, you know, mostly from March to May. The easiest way to get involved is to vote on some of those shareholder proposals. Now, there can be anywhere from one to two, you know, I've seen ballots with, you know, 25 questions on them. And that is a little too much. The bulk of the questions, though, are ones that the company has put on and are very much a bit in the nitty gritty of sort of the governance, like, do you approve this audit firm to do our audit? Do you approve these people to be on the board? Do you approve the stock split or buyback? If investors want to just really get to the impact part, I would skip those questions 
and I would go to the bottom of the questions because the way that they're organized is that the first questions are all the ones that companies put on and the last questions are the ones that shareholders and shareholder advocates can get put on. And then they're really usually pretty straightforward. They're like, do you support the company issuing a report on its plastic use reduction? Yes, (laughs) you do. So you check off yes, and you either mail that ballot back or you can do it over your computer more and more. You can do it electronically. And it takes just a really a few minutes to check off what you agree on. Or do you think that they should do a report on reducing their greenhouse gases? Clearly, yes, they should. Do you think they should adopt a policy around stopping deforestation? Again, yes. And you just check that off or put it on the appropriate box on the online version and you can do that. And you don't have to do it for every company. You could do it for the ones that, you know, are engaged in what you think might be some of the more dangerous practices or companies where you have the most stock or companies, you know, maybe you got a company, an inherited stock that might not be something that you would buy today. So you want to make sure you vote on that one. Or honestly, sometimes people just vote on the ones that they're most familiar with, like the big name ones, you know, Costco, Kroger, Target, because you just, you're in those stores or you know about those companies and that's fine too. I think the easiest, it's just like, just get started. You don't have, it's not an all or nothing. Yeah. That's what my personal trainer tells me. <laughs> but uh, just, right. <laughs> diet and exercise is very easy to, to say and hard to do. But I, I'm curious, and you mentioned, you know, the seasonality of it, and it may be way early days, but at this stage in the game, do we already know some interesting ones that are, that we should, should have paid attention to? Uh, beginning of the year, chances are we we own them for our clients, or at least some of them. Or, or is it uh, you know is, I check in with you in November to see what what sort of ones I should should uh, have on my radar screen? Right, right. Well, I can say that it's better to check in a little bit later. But I do know that there are companies that we have been working with that we are likely to file resolutions with again because we didn't reach agreements with them last year. So some of those are big insurance companies. And the reason that we have been working with them is to stop um, the production of fossil fuels in transition to a more renewable economy, we need to stop new fossil fuel projects. And those projects can only go through if they are underwritten or get insurance from insurance companies. And so one way to stop them in their tracks is to get insurance companies to phase out and stop insuring those new projects. So We worked last year, or I should say we engaged with Chubb, the Hartford, and Travelers and asked them to do that. All three of those companies did not like that question. And when we wanted to put it forth to shareholders, they challenged that question appearing on their proxy statement with the SEC. We won those challenges. So the question went forward to investors 
I anticipate that unless we get agreements with those companies to start the phase out of underwriting coal, oil, and gas projects, that those questions would appear again in some form moving forward. We also are working with a number of food companies, and we're still actually in, we're just starting talking with some of them to make sure that they're looking at greenhouse gas emissions, both for their operations, but also within the I would say within the food that they're sourcing. So for example, to make sure that the food they're sourcing isn't grown by burning down a rainforest in Indonesia or in the Amazon. And so those questions might appear again as sometimes you ask for a report because they need to they need to be transparent to investors about what's happening and they need to start by measuring things. And sometimes you're actually asking for direct reductions. It depends where the company is at. If they haven't done anything, you start with the report. If they have a report, you're asking for them to, okay, now that you know where your emissions are coming from, you got to work to reduce them. Okay. You mentioned factory farming earlier and sort of just now as well. And I don't know if this is something that you could talk about or not, but, you know, Carl Icahn nominated you for a board position at McDonald's uh, in an effort to achieve, I guess, a more humane treatment of the pigs in the sourcing of pork at McDonald's. As far as I can tell, you're not on the board, but I'm just curious to see if you can shed any color on that that topic. Sure. Both in terms of your, your experience with that whole engagement, but also you know, where McDonald's is today on those issues. Yeah, it's a really interesting experience and campaign. And you're right, I am not on the McDonald's board. Ten years ago, McDonald's pledged to get rid of gestation crates, which are these metal crates that pregnant pigs or sows are kept in. And they're so they're so restrictive that a pig can't even turn around in it. It's been demonstrated to show a lot of a lot of stress to the pigs. And honestly, they're unnecessary. And that is why many other companies have moved toward getting rid of them. And McDonald's also said that they would get rid of them 10 years ago. You know, a few years ago, as the Humane Society was checking in with them, because they were part of this agreement that Mr. Icon actually helped negotiate, McDonald's had not made any progress. And so last year, the Humane Society and ICON went to McDonald's and said, listen, you got to honor your pledge or we're going to do something. And what they decided to do was to try to get people on their board that would understand the issue. The, The people charged on the board were like, asleep at the wheel at making sure McDonald's was keeping the commitments not only on this, but on phasing out medically important antibiotics. And I think it's just irresponsible for a company to make a pledge to investors and to nonprofits and then just, you know, to get rid of that pressure and then never fulfill it. And so McDonald's, unfortunately, has not come very far on doing it. The really interesting thing was what happened, though, as a result of it with a host of other companies. And so a company does not want a fight about their board of directors. 
even though McDonald's has not made the progress in honor the commitments they made, a number of other companies, including CVS and Walgreens, agreed to move toward transitioning to cage-free eggs. And then General Mills and Denny's moved toward eliminating just their gestation crates and their pork supplies. And so those companies, apparently aware that this was happening because it was in the paper all the time, that this was happening, wanted to, I don't know why they did it, but I'm going to guess that they did it to avoid any potential board fight and also to better serve the needs of their investors um, and their consumers who just increasingly are looking for that in companies where they're buying their products. (laughs) We could have a whole session on this campaign too um, because it was so fascinating to see how McDonald's was responding to this and how they tried to avert it and, and things like that. Maybe that's for a different time. Yeah, but it's you know it's it's interesting to hear about the sort of the second order effects, positive effects in, in this case. The example really positive, yeah. really positive. And so, as people become more aware of the inhumane conditions and also the overuse of antibiotics in animal supply chains, which really endangers the effectiveness of antibiotics for people, that. I think the issues are going to keep gaining traction and companies are going to be under more and more pressure to do that, especially, you know, especially in the area of pandemics. You can see how important antibiotics are to keeping people from experiencing the worst effects of viruses. Yeah. And I just imagine the publicity is not, uh, not something that uh, companies are clamoring for in terms of the uh, you know the animal rights issues, especially if you're a consumer facing company. So I, I could see the get you know, desire to do something. No, um, I mean we we get a lot of press coverage in all the major outlets on our advocacy, from you know the Wall Street Journal to New York Times, and in my ten years at Green Century, this is the running for the McDonald's board and talking about the issue, this got the most press coverage of anything we've ever done. And so no company wants their name to be in the paper on anything that is critical of the company. And so that is a real leverage point that investors have with with companies um, is the way consumers have to voice their concerns. Again, through they can vote their proxies, they could write a letter, um, simple things like that. Um, those things do matter to companies. Yeah, as sort of the social license to operate, I guess, if you will. And we're coming up on uh, sort of the end of our podcast here, but you know, I just wanted to circle back to comment I made during my introductory comments, which is you know, we have a dual mandate, so we're always very much focused on risk-adjusted returns, you know, for our investors and and aligning with their values, but but both of those are musts, if you will. Can you speak a little to that aspect? You know, as an investor buying a mutual fund, how should they think of the performance aspect of it? Or, or certainly, you know, we don't know what performance in the future will hold, but can they be return focused and, and do this? Or is there a certain level of kind of sacrifice involved financially? And it's not an entirely fair question, so so you could you could you know, answer however you see fit. Or sure, the use of 
ESG or environmental, social, and governance factors, it gets characterized as, you know, responsible investing. And I think the way that it's responsible is that you look at how a company is managing those risks, it can give you an insight into how companies are managing other risks and just how it's prepared for all sorts of issues. And so using ESG may actually increase your performance and outcomes for a shareholder. And on excluding certain industries, there have been studies that indicate that over time, excluding any one industry, whether it's tobacco or fossil fuels or guns or whatever you might want to exclude, if you're a long-term investor, it shows that there may not be any negative effects for you at all. Now, if people are listening and going, well, wait a minute, what about fossil fuels? Because obviously it's something, an issue that we're paying a lot of attention to right now. And what I would say is like, look at, look at what happened with fossil fuels over the last 10 years. And if you were not in fossil fuels for those 10 years, I have to be careful because my compliance department will listen to this and are very careful about what I say, but you could look at our track record. You could look at the track records of other indexes that did that. And you might see that, in fact, you benefited back then. And this is a period where you might not be benefiting. But again, these things usually bear out over time. And again, as a long-term investor, you want to stay in the market and stay with your convictions. And so at any one given time period, you might benefit or you might not. But I think for people listening that they're probably not the person who is chasing like every last basis point. Obviously, they're trying to do two things, competitive returns and align their values. And I think it's the wave of the future. And as more and more products become available and there's more and more of a track record, they're going to be able to see how these things pan out. I know for our investors, that even in this downturn of a market, that they are sticking with their convictions. And if they have the cash on hand, they're putting and deploying more now while the market is slow to get in um, with the hopes that it will climb and they can they can do both. Right. Yeah. And and I, I have a follow up on there and I, I don't want to have the last word. So I'm going to ask you one last question and that'll be it. But, but my, <laughs> I would also, you know, to your point that, you know, I, I think the best investors are the ones that have a strong hand, right. And sort of maybe not the best idea to use gambling analogies, but, you know, in poker, if you have a weak hand, you, you fold too soon. And, and I feel that clients, investors that are engaged with their portfolio to have a strong hand because they're, you know, they're more vested in, in what they own. Therefore, they're right. more likely not to, you know, sort of fire sale their assets in a bear market or what have you. So that is, to me, sort of supports the idea that it's not to your financial disadvantage to invest this way. But I'm curious if, how you think in, in terms of is shareholder activism as an activity, do you think? Because sometimes it seems maybe it's a little adversarial. Are you kind of being active against your own financial self-interest, one. And then secondly, is it is it a very costly thing to do? Meaning that if I own a, a mutual fund that's an activist shareholder, is there 
is that sort of at the margin or is that substantially more expensive than not doing it essentially so so you can you can pick and choose from from what i threw out sure. there uh, but are, I, I really want you to the last one yeah, these are great questions. I mean, we believe that companies that manage their environmental risks are better positioned for better performance, in addition to the fact that if they're dealing with their greenhouse gas emissions or plastic pollution or use or overuse of antibiotics, it's better for the environment and society. And so we approach it from and our conversations, which do vary from company to company. Some companies are, a, a few are like, that's a really good point. We haven't thought about it. Let's take that back and then actually move on that. And others who convincing is the sort of milder term for how we're working with them, that it's in everyone's interest for them to become more sustainable in the long term. And so I feel like it's it's aligned with what investors' interests are as well as societies for them to get to that place. And is it costly? It takes a lot of time, I would say. It takes time to research the company, figure out how they're doing compared to their peers, looking at a lot of data, look at what they're reporting, what they're not, looking at where the holes are. And that's just on, say, one issue, like, forest protection or plastics or greenhouse gas goals or using pesticides. And so when you're looking at that across, you know, up to a hundred companies a year across multiple issues, it does take a lot of time. And so we have a team of people. We also have an outside lawyer to help us craft resolutions that can withstand a challenge at the SEC if a company decides to go that route. And then we work to educate other institutional investors if we're going to put this question on the ballot because those big institutions carry a lot of votes with them as well as your clients who have some votes with them. Um, and then if it, we weren't in a pandemic, we would be in person going to all these shareholder meetings and presenting our case at those annual meetings. And so our team of shareholder advocates does all that work. And as president, I have been directly overseeing that. So we put a high priority on it because at Green Century, we, we think it's part of the value proposition that we deliver to our investors. And it sets us apart from, you know, the thousands of other mutual funds that are out there that are just investing in an index or following some other strategy. Hopefully our investors think that it's worth it. Um, and that's why they keep investing with us. And that's why, I mean, I just on a personal, it's like why I think it's so great that I get to work at Green Century and lead our firm because I get to live out my values every day and really see the impact every month and every year in terms of moving big global corporations to make a positive change for the environment. And it's a great feeling. And I, I hope that people get involved in even a small way or just even following shareholder advocacy to see what the power of their investments can do, what their investments can do. Leslie, 
Thank you very much for joining us today. I thought it was a very thought-provoking and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure.